0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back from lunch, and welcome to this uh, third and final panel on the governance of a city-state. Um, in 1965, soon after Singapore separated from Malaysia, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew promised that, notwithstanding the loss of the hinterland and the challenges facing the new state, both domestically and regionally, Singapore will succeed and become a metropolis. The vision was indeed a bold one and was extended a few years later by Foreign Minister Mr S. Rajaratnam, who argued for Singapore to position itself as a global city. It can be said today that the vision of transforming Singapore into a a metropolis and global city has been realized and Singapore, a state which might not have existed if not for some twist in history as Janandas alluded to this morning, has this distinction of being the only true remaining city-state in the world today. From the loss of the Malaysian hinterland, the world has become Singapore's hinterland. Well, Singapore's success as a city-state has been shaped by a combination of factors including visionary leadership, effective policies, strategic investments, and the ability to adapt to changing circumstances, its unique status, as a small city-state comes with a set of complex challenges that requires careful planning and innovative solutions to ensure its continued success and well-being. And the world today looks very different from the world in 1965. Just as Mr. Lee challenged Singaporeans to build a metropolis, he also admitted that city-states do not have long lives. So what needs to happen for Singapore to keep it going in terms of designing and planning for sustainability, resilience and inclusivity? What are existing and evolving challenges that need to be addressed and new trends and changing circumstances that need to be recognised? This is the frame for today's panel discussion and I'm delighted to be joined by three distinguished panellists who will take us through these issues. I'll invite them uh, in a way they are seated in order of of, uh, presentation today. First, uh, Mr. Peter Ho, Chairman of the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Singapore URA. He chairs a whole host of uh, committees, too long for me to read out here, but he's also the Senior Advisor to the Centre of Strategic Futures and Senior Fellow in the Civil Service College, spent nearly 40 years in the civil service where he was head of the civil service and he headed many key ministries. So Peter will kick off today's panel presentations, and then after that, we'll have questions uh, for him and fellow panelists later. Peter, may I invite you to present your paper?
1: Uh, Good afternoon. City-states have existed since antiquity, but with the rise of the Westphalian (coughs) nation-state, Only three city-states remain today, Singapore, Monaco, and Vatican City. And of these, only Singapore is a truly independent, sovereign city-state, in particular because it looks after its own defence. A city-state is invariably small. It has no contiguous hinterland and no natural resources. Singapore is the 20th smallest country in the world by land area, less than half the size of London. And Singapore has one more constraint. Although it is an island, it is also a geographically disadvantaged state with no direct access to the high seas. It falls into the same category of landlocked countries like Laos, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, Austria and Switzerland. A sovereign city-state, never mind a city-state on an island, is an anomaly in the modern world, where size really does matter. Its existence is a constant struggle with challenges that larger nations with hinterlands and natural resources do not worry about. In 1957, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew observed that island nations are a political joke. Singapore was never conceived of as an independent nation, but separation from Malaysia in 1965 saw Singapore's sudden and unintended elevation to sovereign city-state. Then, in an act of political bravado, Mr Lee Kuan Yew made a bold promise, and I quote, over 100 years ago, this was a mudflat, eh? he's referring to Singapore, a swamp, today, this is a modern city, 10 years from now, this will be a metropolis, never fear. It was a breathtaking commitment given the circumstances of Singapore's independence. But Mr. Lee kept his promise. Singapore moved from third world to first within two generations. But Singapore's very success may well mask the deep challenges that remain, and remain mostly undiminished. Our small size and low-lying position makes us extremely vulnerable to climate change. Our economic position that is built on free and open trade and a level playing field is constantly tested by geopolitical developments, particularly by the US-China tensions of the present. But we can take inspiration from Venice, also a city-state island that lasted for more than A millennia, thriving for much of that time as the centre of trade between Europe and Asia. Venice was the global hub of its era. Singapore can and should aspire to be a global hub, like Venice during the Renaissance. Through the power law, a global hub grows faster and stronger than other cities. Singapore already has many of the key attributes of a global hub, including outstanding connectivity through its port, airport, telecommunications, and financial infrastructure. To rise above its inherent vulnerabilities, aiming to be a global hub should be at the centre of Singapore's economic ambitions. Since the 1950s, after the end of the Second World War, change caused by human activity started to accelerate. This phenomenon is sometimes referred to as the Great Acceleration. Scientists now say that we have entered the Anthropocene, the first era in world's history in which human activity is having a decisive impact on our planet's ecosystem. It is not difficult to understand why. Globalisation is driving up consumer demand. Sorry, urbanisation is driving up consumer demand. Globalisation has taken off because of air travel, container shipping, telecommunications, and the internet. Industrialization is on the rise, and the demand for infrastructure is growing. These combine to create a spiralling demand for resources, food, water, and energy, Demand that is straining the Earth's ecosystem. Climate change is, of course, a crucial consequence. Technology is another major factor propelling the great acceleration. Moore's law says that computing power doubles every few years, every two years. It is this digital technology that is powering the fourth industrial revolution, the era of connectivity, advanced analytics and most recently, artificial intelligence, all bundled and intertwined with each other. Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum, writes, and I quote, when compared with previous industrial revolutions, the fourth is evolving at an exponential rather than a linear pace. Moreover, it is disrupting almost every industry in every country. And the breadth and depth of these changes herald the transformation of entire systems of production, management, and governance. Our former senior minister, Saman Shamoguratnam, carries the argument even further, asserting that we face a confluence of lasting structural insecurities, geopolitical, economic, and existential, each reinforcing the other. We have entered a perfect long storm. Acceleration gives little time for governments and societies to adapt. Decision cycles are compressed within shorter and shorter time frames. Interaction and interconnectivity lead to outcomes that are inherently unpredictable. The economist Adam Tooze described this as the world of the poly crisis, in which the shocks are disparate but they interact so that the whole is even more overwhelming than the sum of its parts. We often only know what is going to happen when it happens. This is the property of emergence that defines the world we live in today, a world that is sometimes described as VUCA, or volatile, uh, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. We must, must expect to be surprised. And in a period of accelerating change, we can expect to be facing big shocks like black swans and unknown unknowns more frequently and with less time to respond. Mr Lee Kuan Yew said, the past was not preordained, nor is the future. There are as many unexpected problems ahead as there were in the past. The changes brought about by the Fourth Industrial Revolution and the structural shocks of the perfect long storm and the poly crisis cannot be dealt with by individual ministries or agencies operating within their narrow silos. Instead, the whole-of-government approach, which looks at big challenges in a more comprehensive and holistic way, is essential to tackling the complex and wicked problems that arise from emergence. Many of the problems are neither black swans or unknown unknowns. Instead, they are either known knowns or at least known unknowns. Issues like climate change that pose existential challenges are no longer dogged by debates over their scientific provenance. It is no longer if, but when, and by how much. In 2019, Prime Minister Lee hsien said, both the SEF and climate change defenses are essential for Singapore. These are life and death matters. Everything else must bend at the knees to safeguard the existence of our island nation. We cannot afford to wait for a crisis to develop before doing something about it. By then, of course, it would be too late. If we accept the proposition that we are going to be disrupted from time to time, then resilience must be an important driver of planning and policy making for all governments. A resilient approach does not aim for perfect answers in which the outcomes are perfectly predictable. Instead, there must be a willingness to try things out. But we must then come to terms with the reality that despite our best efforts, things often do fail in our VUCA world. Then, instead of just waiting, looking for someone to blame, we should contain the fallout and solve the problem. I call this approach safe-fail as opposed to fail-safe. Fail-safe means you risk nothing, but then you also achieve nothing and there will be no progress. As Dr. Goh Keng Swee, the architect of Singapore's e- economy once said, the only way to avoid making mistakes is not to do anything, but that will be the ultimate mistake. To this end, we must be willing to make fundamental changes, setting aside tried and tested approaches, accepting the risk of trying something new that may have no precedent or may show little immediate evidence of success. It is a mindset in government which acknowledges that what worked well in the past may very well become less effective or even counterproductive in the future. The ability to change with confidence, even in the absence of complete information and uncertainty of outcome, is a capability of the highest order in government. The dictum crossing the river by feeling the stones, often attributed to Deng Xiaoping, (laughs) points to a willingness to probe, to sense, and then to respond. It is an iterative approach when things are moving fast and unpredictably, such as during the COVID-19 pandemic. Because there are no right or wrong answers in such situations, a resilient organisation, a resilient government, needs some buffer and scope for diversity in both thought as well as in action. It must have the willingness and the space to discover and to experiment with new solutions. This is not an argument for creating bloated and sluggish bureaucracies, but judiciously allocated extra capacity is vital to building resilience. We all understand the rationale for having clear sets of working guidelines, standard procedures, and benchmarks. There is no doubt that structures and processes are important, if not critical, to the smooth and efficient running of government. But the problem is this. An overemphasis on structure and processes can become an obstacle to developing resilience. This is because it could focus the organisation or the government, on activities that become unimportant when disruptions occur, it can create rigidities, the very antithesis of resilience, when flexibility is required and flexibility is most required when dealing with crises and disruptions. The litmus test is not efficiency, but solving problems as they arise. In this regard, I'm reminded what Mr. Lee Kuan Yew said in an interview with American journalist Tom Plate. And I quote, I do not work on a theory. Instead, I will ask, what will make this work? If after a series of solutions, I find that a certain approach worked, then I try to find out what was the principle behind the solution. Presented with a difficulty or major problem, or an assortment of conflicting facts, I review what alternatives I have if my proposed solution does not work. I choose a solution which offers a higher probability of success. But if it fails, I have some other way. Never a dead end. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for reminding us that the existence uh, of a city state is always a challenge and there are always vulnerabilities that city states have to face, and that resilience and flexibility are key in dealing with this challenge, and that the work never ends, that constantly are seeking for solutions. Um, I'd like now to invite our second speaker, Professor Chung Kun Hien, who is chair of the Lee Kuan Yew uh, Center for Innovative Cities and at the Singapore University of Technolog- Technology and Design, uh, Prof. Chong was previously the Chief Executive Officer of the HDB and also the Urban Redevelopment Authority. Uh, Prof. Chong, uh, may I have your presentation, please? Thank you.
1: Thank you.
2: Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, i 'm very happy to join you today. Thank you for coming and uh, it 's good to have the opportunity to reflect on the future together. Well to start off it really bears reminder and we 've been reminded time again that Singapore was really once a mud flat, and I would add a nation of slums and squatters. We were fortunate that our forefathers and leaders made many right decisions with much sweat and a bit of luck. We have transformed indeed into a modern metropolis but as many speakers have pointed out, many of the challenges we faced decades ago have not disappeared. We remain a little red dot, which is land and resource constrained. And as we heard from the various panels this morning, we are also facing greater uncertainty from cascading and connected global risks which collectively have compounding effects. So how will the future physical landscape of focus on the physical landscape. How will it unfold for us in the next few decades? Well, I've picked out four critical drivers of change that we will need to pay close attention to. The first driver is about resource shifts and cliffs. The perennial challenge for us is our limited physical resources. With a population that has grown some 3.3 times since 1965 and with more of our land urbanized, how can we create a virtuous cycle of land stock for future generations? We also need to strengthen our resilience, as Peter has pointed out, also to supply disruptions in resources like food and energy that will keep recurring due to inclement weather, conflicts, pestilence, or basically just protectionist tendencies of countries. The second driver is that Collective international climate change action will compel us to live in a carbon-constrained world. Singapore has committed to a net zero goal by 2050. To meet this goal, we will really require highly integrated strategies and very innovative technological solutions to drive a reduction in our carbon footprint. And with rising fiscal burden in transitioning to net zero, we need to prepare businesses and communities for this transition. The third driver has been termed people in the fourth age and city in the third age. We are aging. Every time I come to the IPS conference, I can also see that, including myself. We will be super-aged by 2030, with 1 in 4 being 65 years and above, and this rate is going to accelerate to reach 1 in 3 by 2050. In another one to two decades, many of us will be in our 80s, known as the fourth age. I won't ask you to put up your hands. <laughs> uh, I'll be one of them. And there will be rising healthcare demands, even as we work to prolong health span and not just lifespan. But not only is Singapore's population aging, the city is also maturing into its third age. An estimated 50 to 60% of Singapore's existing infrastructure will be over half a century old by 2040. And by 2050, some 33% of HDB buildings will be 70 years old. We will need to prepare and master massive fiscal, physical, environmental and human resources to rejuvenate our city. The fourth driver is about societal changes. There will be new aspirations and lifestyle needs from a population mix that will comprise more new citizens and from transnational marriages over time, simply because our total fertility rate is dropping. The contestation for space and resources will intensify, and many of our citizens will root for causes they believe in, whether they are green issues, heritage or social inequities in access to resources and amenities. Technology will accelerate our lifestyle trends and affect the way we live, work, and play. And uh, the design of our city will need to cater to all these new aspirations and lifestyle. And of course, undergirding all this is technology and AI acceleration, which will influence greatly, as I said, how we live, work, and play, and the outcomes and solutions that will be adopted. So many challenges, and we cannot wish these away, but we can organise ourselves better and more effectively to address them and on a more positive note cities are crises are actually necessary to push for change Prof. Yan Golding who spoke this morning in the panel noted in his latest book on the age of the city that there is an emergence of superstar cities globally due to multiple factors such as talent clustering increase in productivity from proximity and availability of, say, universities and high-quality living. The rising global superstar firms, which are also consolidating, are particularly drawn to these cities to access the required skills. Well, if this is so, we certainly want to be one of the superstar cities. It will not be enough to simply deal with our challenges. We need to reimagine, to reinvent, and to regenerate ourselves so that we can provide the ecosystem of opportunities for our people to thrive in this new world. I have very limited time, so i very quickly and briefly touch on six shifts, which is quite a lot. Some are not new, but a continuation of much of the good work that my colleagues in the government agencies are already pursuing. Others may bring different perspectives for further conversation and debate. So first, let's look at our p- urban planning process. Singapore is always touted as having a very good long-term planning uh, in the whole of government approach. But with a more uncertain future, our agencies now deploy foresight and scenario planning to postulate possible scenarios to increase our preparedness and resilience. So instead of one plan, they are looking at uh, various scenarios and to plan for optionality. Uh, But this is not so simple, right? because we will be entering an era where we will have more brownfield than greenfield sites, which limits our buffer space. So agencies will need to work out new frameworks and methodologies for developing such scenarios and finding enough room for manoeuvre. I had previously advocated that we adopt a lifecycle approach to planning. I think we should look long-term, even to 100 years. I'm sure there'll be questions about this because I really think it will enable us to capture the opportunities for potential redevelopment beyond the economic and useful lifespan of existing buildings. Now, beyond livability and sustainability, which are always our priorities, more emphasis will need to be placed on really a wider slate of priorities. Not only a good quality of life, perhaps an excellent quality of life, uh, to retain relevance and attractiveness even as the world shifts towards safer havens? Can our city build in greater resilience and drive towards becoming net zero? So these are all the new priorities. And also healthier, equitable and inclusive city. The future of urban governance will certainly be a technologically driven one. Digital innovation reinforced with uh, AI offer new ways to better manage and equip cities, to optimise and deliver services, to engage with our residents, and help to achieve more sustainable development. But, there is always a but. There are risks, right, involved in the adoption of digital technology and AI. For example, AI reinforces the existing assumptions and biases in their data and design. So the acceleration of, Technology and the applications must be accompanied by the development of clear digital and AI governance to better understand when and how to deploy these technologies and how to manage the risk. Digital governance that include regulations, ethics, norms and social practices must evolve in parallel with digital adoption. I know it's not easy. We don't want to stifle and yet I always say that the technology goes ahead of the code and the ethics. Which is a problem. Third, as a resource-constrained city-state, Singapore must continue to push resource innovations. And in view of time limitation, I will just touch on two resources: land and energy. There's been much experimentation. We have done polders. We've done underground caverns. We and a, a exploring of floating platforms. Right? For example, Kepa is looking at the floating data center. But These really face very high constraints. We have high cost, lack of landfill, and there are limits to our territorial boundary. But nevertheless, such greenfield sites really provide fertile ground for great innovation. For example, we have been talking about the Long Island reclamation at the East Coast. I'm very sure it offers great opportunities when we actually plan and implement this for new ideas. For example, we can store water, have recreation, and maybe even introduce a lot of underground space. But with very limited greenfield sites, a key paradigm shift is to work towards a new pipeline of land by recycling our brownfield sites to serve future generations. The leasehold nature of the majority of our land is critical to enable us to recover the land when the lease ends. Redevelopment of areas like Jurong Lake District, Pa Lebar, the Greater Southern Waterfront and the development of HDB towns can become our new sandboxes to reinvent our city-state. There are opportunities for us to plan and design net-zero and healthier districts supported by more efficient and low-carbon green infrastructure. I want to just mention regional collaboration. To grow our space and resources, regional collaborations will still be a very important strategy. Of course, we have to learn to manage and navigate the risks of locating offshore, whether they are geopolitical or regulatory risks. This is a whole subject of its own. I won't go into it because of time. Next is about reimagining power. I think in the area of energy, the government is pushing four switches to power our future. Uh, One is gas. So we're diversifying our natural resources, gas resources, uh, such as the use of LNG, There's solar. We will deploy more solar by 2030, but this will only meet 4% of our current annual electricity needs, not a lot. But we have to keep looking at greater research and innovation to tap this resource uh, more. So for example, recently, Caltech reported a successful experiment in tapping solar energy from space, so maybe we have to go into space research. Third is about regional power uh, grids. Again, that international collaboration is so important, where we have to tap on regional power grids. And we have already started on this. For example, Keppel has worked uh, in uh, collaboration with Laos, Thailand and Malaysia to bring in renewable hydropower from Laos through the grid that passes through Thailand and Malaysia. So, these are good examples. Uh, So, there's also emerging low-carbon alternatives. I won't go into detail, but you will see that there's carbon capture, there is uh, maybe nuclear. It's never off the table. Uh, Perhaps tidal power or geothermal energy. We we didn't think of having geothermal energy, right? But now you go to... Selita, maybe we won't just cook eggs, but we're actually drawing power from geothermal. Whoever thought. But nothing is impossible. The fourth point I want to make is about uh, our development and rejuvenation. There's going to be upcoming massive development and rejuvenation efforts. We could shift in our mindset towards a more regenerative approach. Instead of just stemming ecological loss, doing the minimum, do no harm. I think that's not enough. We need to work towards restoring resources and achieving ecological gain. For example, we can design buildings not only to use less energy, but can we produce and store energy on site for use during night hours? So this is about going beyond just stemming ecological loss. A regenerative city also embraces what I call circular and symbiotic systems to reduce and reuse resources to achieve urban sustainability. For example, having closed the water loop, our agencies are working hard to close a waste and carbon loop. Going forward, can we try not just only to achieve, for example, a waste water energy nexus, but perhaps even a waste water energy carbon capture nexus, uh, something which the Netherlands is exploring. And urban symbiosis, in land use planning, can also increase the circularity of critical raw, ma- raw materials. So, for example, URA and JTC are planning the upcoming Sungai Kadut Eco District, and hopefully, we can put the agri-tech, food manufacturing and processing, and environmental tech, and biosciences together to reap synergies, enabling one's business ways to become another's resource. My fifth point is that we need to facilitate the transition to net zero or even to become net positive one day. The government plays an important role here. Our policies will need to be designed to shift niche green technologies to the mainstream. And there are many initiatives. I've just mentioned a couple. Uh, For example, how do we create demand for low carbon assets and services? We could adopt green Public procurement standards, which the government is looking at, we can support the formation of profitable markets, profitable markets by establishing trading platforms for low-carbon com- commodities. Can we level the playing field between high-carbon and low-carbon technologies? We're already doing that through carbon pricing, and of course, we support R&D. And uh, again, I mentioned about building countries' coalitions, bilateral power arrangements and also the signing of MOUs to secure carbon credits we have to buy from somebody else. Many of the possible initiatives we discuss will require very difficult decisions and trade-offs between different interests, between different needs and wants, and intergenerational allocation of resources. And this would require many conversations across multiple stakeholders to strike the right balance, and to obtain buy-in. But there has been no lack of government-initiated conversations in the past two and a half decades. In fact, the chairman of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, once described Singapore as a model of stakeholder government. So we have many conversations, and the forward Singapore conversation is still continuing. To strengthen the people, private, institutional and public partnership, we will need to look into more effective ways to transit from consultative engagements to transformative partnerships. Digital and data democracy will increase participation and the voice of the community and various interest groups. New models of community communication are needed to discuss issues rationally and constructively. Well, at least as much as possible. And to do this, we also need to build a future-ready society who can understand the issues confronting Singapore and the trade-offs so that there is greater community understanding and ownership of our future. So, in fact, recently, the Lee Kuan Yew Centre for Innovative Cities partnered with the IPS and with very strong support of the TOAT Board took a very small step forward to facilitate such a process. In this collaboration, we hope to do research to provide insights into future-oriented challenges and to identify gaps that need to be addressed. And we want to encourage the community to come on board with ideas to co-create and co-drive pilot projects on social innovation to plug these gaps. The objective really is to prepare our society to be future ready and to strengthen social resilience. So to be sure, Singapore faces many challenges, but there are also many opportunities to be innovative and to reinvent ourselves. This is a potential future image of Singapore generated by mid-journey, very high density in the midst of greenery and flowing waters. So we can always dream I show you that my speech, none of it came from ChatGBT. Only this particular drawing from Mid Journey, all right, is generated by Mid Journey. But our cohesiveness and determination to overcome and to excel, as our forefathers did, would be crucial. And like everybody, I end with a quote from Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. Let me just get forward, and this is his quote. A nation is great not by its size alone. It is the will, the cohesion, the stamina, the discipline of its people, and the quality of its leaders, which ensure it an honourable place in history. And I hope we will prove Mr. Lee Kuan Yew right. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Prof. Chong. But that very detailed coverage of the various challenges uh, that will Singapore will face, and also the approaches uh, that have been adopted to deal with all these challenges. We've had uh, two very good presentations uh, showing the Singapore view, and I think this panel will benefit from a view from the outside, an external view. And it's my pleasure to invite uh, Professor Wu Weiping, Professor of Urban Planning and Director of Urban Planning Programs and Dean of Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University. Uh, Prof Wu is an internationally acclaimed urban and planning scholar working on global urbanization with expertise in issues of migration, housing, and infrastructure of Chinese cities. Uh, Prof Wu, over to you, please.
3: Thank you. Thanks to my two colleagues on the panel. And so that allows me to perhaps as a visitor and the urbanist to offer and share with you more of a bird's eye view of Singapore. And I think in the morning, we also have to- quite a bit of extensive discussion of the limitations Singapore f- faces as a small city state. So perhaps I could um, organize my sharing of ideas with you in three questions. And the first one is, how can Singapore remain the nexus of East and West and perhaps Global North and Global South? Literally and figuratively. I think the unique advantage of Singapore It's its location. Both geographically, we know throughout history, Singapore has played a significant role as the melting pot and nexus of trade, migration, and investment. But second, epistemologically, Singapore also has a great location quote, unquote, so to speak, from latecomer to the front of the pack. So in the morning, we heard about that. But the process from being a latecomer to the front of the pack gives Singapore that unique, quote, unquote, location in this role as the nexus between the Global North and south, so geographically obviously east and west, but I would argue that we need to move on to epistemologically. So the reason I want to emphasize that second aspect is to see Singapore as a force to provincialize urban and governance thinking in the current era, so let me draw on this slightly. For many years, and as an academic person, we've read lots of theories about governance, about urban change, but much of it is centered in a world region at a particular historical point and in a particular context of tradition, but, those theories have been considered as universal. What Singapore has experienced and gone through since the early 60s, as well as what some other countries have gone through, have the potential to provincialize those theories and the potential to chart a competitive pathway. Essentially, it offers the possibility of a new narrative of a strong state as well as what Professor Kong Hee talked about as the stakeholder engagement as a way of enriching our understanding of cities, not only of Singapore, but certainly of cities across the world. So on this I very much believe that Singapore can, one, become a learning lab and demystifying, perhaps, I haven't heard this, but I sense in many of people's mind that Singapore is exceptional, or the so-called, I would say, Singapore exceptionalism. We've heard American exceptionalism, we heard Chinese exceptionalism, but I do feel uh, that in many people's minds, especially in urban uh, practitioners, I just came from um, New Delhi of a conference there uh, yesterday and when people mention Singapore, oh, there's nothing we can learn from them because it's so unique, it's so small, it's got very peculiar pathway of growth. I disagree. Precisely what Professor uh, Kong He has outlined, those processes and system know-how are very much a basis that Singapore can use to provide capacity building for the global south cities. I truly believe that the soft power of Singapore is the really future of its geographical and... um, geopolitical role in many ways. Now, I'm not a political scientist, uh, so we shall shall see. And on the other hand, this kind of capacity building also has the potential to expand the educational influence in this post-industrial era of Singapore. Essentially uh, being the center or one of the centers of educating and lifelong learning of professionals and practitioners in the world of built environment, professions, and other uh, professions. So that's my first question. My second question is then, how can the city-state of Singapore coexist, not confront, coexist with climate change? and a number of the speakers have talked about the coastal geography being most vulnerable. And I am less optimistic about the role of technology and even renewable energy in terms of achieving a more sustainable future. Part of it comes to my belief, persuaded by a colleague of mine at Berkeley, of the concept of development delay, which means or refers to the additional years of continued investment in infrastructure in human resources necessary to achieve benefits that would have occurred otherwise. Singapore has been quite fortunate. Uh, many other places have not been. Just watch Hawaii, watch America, uh, many American cities and elsewhere the significant impact from climate change and sea level rise. So this inevitably calls for coexistence with the fact that retreat and adaptation may trump growth. Again, literally and figuratively. In that, changed behavior and changing behavior must be on the top of the agenda and how we can manage and reduce consumption. Um, Singapore, I may say, strikes me as on the other spectrum. Again, just coming back from New Delhi, I was so very surprised that the people still use plates made of leaves, uh, a traditional means of sustainability. And there are also natural system solutions that have been used in global south cities that we can uh, uh, use as point of reference. More importantly, Singapore, of course, territorially is constrained. Globally, only about 55% of the municipal solid waste is managed in controlled facilities we are literally and figuratively running out of space for conventional landfill. We can use technology, we can do composting, we can do compressing, but none works effectively without the part that we do on the consumption side. And I'm also very much impressed by the vertical green designs that Singapore has been using, but nonetheless, forgive me if I shall offend you, I feel Singapore very much remains a concrete jungle. Um, So I very much feel that to incentivize both changes in consumption and environmental stewardship can pave the way for a more sustained city-state here in Singapore and everywhere else. Again, my visit to Kobay, Japan, a number of years ago, gave us a lot of food for thought in terms of using recycled materials, in terms of disaster resistance, but also in terms of retreat. My last question is how can Singapore exemplify a rule of a role of cities as a refuge in the age of mobility much of it forced mobility and this is not quite the same point of reference for Singapore because of its city state uh, status but about a third I confirmed that fact uh, with a colleague over the lunch table If Singapore's workforce are migrant workers. So Singapore actually throughout its history and current period of time has a very diverse population. And that makes me moving back to my first point as a nexus of East and West. And we also know that the contest for citizenship rights inevitably arises when population comes from different parts of the world and their citizenship rights are different and differentiated uh, at the place of their destination. And I believe that, your fo- that Lee Kuan Yeo at one point suggested, again, borrow my lunch table mates uh, quotation, that Singapore may die or live by migration. And so I feel Singapore represents a brand of more tolerant and humanistic politics distinguished from the larger apathetic political climate globally. And that is unfortunately proceeding in my home country now, in the United States, and many other countries around the world. And this kind of politics is also beneficial for a sustained workforce in this island city-state. So many of us speakers have talked about. So to really buttress that claim, we need to think about supportive housing to house the unhoused. That now is a significant challenge in my city, the New York, New York City, where we have received many bus loads and plane loads of migrants who have come to the United States. But United States thrived on this mo- melting pot characteristic, and so will Singapore. On the other hand, this melting pot of migrants and immigrants provide the vitality many of the greatest global cities continue to witness. The messy, the but vibrant and interesting uh, urban sceneries that we witness. So I, again, went to uh, old Delhi two days ago. It was intense, it was interesting, it was fascinating, it was sad, all at the same time. But that makes Delhi quite a vibrant city and that will last for the longest time that we have seen. And to quote Ed Glazer, not so much to quote, large cities are homes to many of the rich and many of the poor and many in the middle because all of us find a way to survive find a way to make a living in these large cities. And that messiness and diversity uh, are the beauty of many of the large cities. So again, to conclude, I think the combination of humility and collaborative spirit on the one hand, and the can-do and the spirit work, the the superior work ethics on the other, lays the continuing critical role of Singapore as a true nexus of the east and west, as well as as the global south and north. I thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Professor Wu. So we've heard of Singapore being the hub, but this time we're hearing that it could be a nexus as well. Now, I think the, the final point that you made, uh, Prof. could be a good segue for us to start the discussion after hearing three excellent presentations. And that's your whole idea of uh, your question about Singapore being a, a city of mobility for refugees and C- Singapore being a city that could attract uh, different peoples from the outside, make it vibrant and exciting and all that. So my question to the panel is, Singapore is a city state, it is a country. Mm-hmm. Are there inherent tensions between a city state and a nation state? Are this, can these two become one in a sense? When one has to be, a city state has to be open, attract all sorts of talents, open to trade, connectivity, but now you have a settled citizenry that has expectations uh, as citizens of a country. And here we constantly see this tension between a uh, sense of parochialism and the need to remain open. So, what are your thoughts on this? is, Singapore is sui generis in a sense—a city and a country. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, and whether you see inherent tensions that essentially might become difficult to manage? Um, whoever wants to go first.
3: Peter, you want to go?
0: Peter, you want to go first, And? Share some thoughts.
1: working? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I think, uh, in a way, this is a bit of a red herring discussion because if you accept the proposition that uh, Singapore is forever imprisoned uh, in a literal and uh, uh, metaphorical way within the confines of... Uh, 720 square kilometres of uh, an island. Uh, Then we have to uh, accept the constraints that uh, go with it, which is the constraints of uh, lack of hinterland, lack of uh, natural resource. And natural resource, of course, includes uh, people. And the big challenge we will face is how to overcome these uh, uh, constraints. And I think... uh, If you look back in history to uh, city-states like uh, Venice, city-states like uh, Venice actually had a very uh, uh, open approach uh, to what we in Singapore today call foreign talent. In fact, they uh, deliberately uh, wooed and attracted foreign talent into uh, Venice because they realised that that was the way uh, to grow Venice as an intellectual, artistic, as well as a trading uh, hub. So they were very open. Undoubtedly, that will if you take that approach, that will uh, create tensions between those uh, who are the newcomers and those who are established. Uh, but that, I think, is a, a, a very important question which uh, the political leadership uh, will have to address. You can't run away from it. Uh, you can't wish it away. It's a, it's almost an existential question, particularly when you think about uh, problems which Kun Hien highlighted, which is our demographic uh, profile, which if you just look at our uh, TFR, our uh, uh, rate of ageing, it's a real uh, serious issue. And if we want to uh, think about a long-term future for Singapore, I think... Uh, it's uh, a, a very essential question which we have to address. And I think the answer is uh, that we do have to be open and accepting of uh, uh, foreign talent into our midst. Then you have to overcome uh, issues like uh, uh, responsibilities of uh, uh, which citizenships, uh, citizens uh, play, which is things like national service. You have, to, you have to deal with those kinds of issues. But we, we can't avoid that question uh, for the long-term good of uh, Singapore. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Of Cheong? Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, I, I think we have no choice. So it, it's not... Well, you can ask the question, but we don't have a choice. We're both a city-state and a nation-state, full stop. And you have to live with it, right? So it's how do we deal with it? Uh, many people... Tell me, why can't we be like New York? Can we be more dense? Can we uh, build taller? Can we build higher? And I am whipping uh, uh, you say that we're still a concrete jungle, so it's something we have to struggle and do that balance. Uh, we are not New York. We are a country. That's, New York doesn't have to cater for its water, its military, full ports, airports, everything that you need. So we are not. We are a country. People forget. They they visit New York, and then on a very high-density cities they say, why can't we do that? We can't. My second point is that it's all about balance. It's a very fine balancing act. That's why if you look at land use planning, it has to be long-term, because you have to cater for every category of need that Singapore will need in this little space. For us, it's not a nice-to-have Longer term planning, be it land use, be it strategic, be it economy, whatever. It is existential for us, including especially now climate change. So having the time to prepare and to plan and striking the right balance is probably the most difficult. We will have all these tensions. You need the workers, you have immigration, you have foreign worker housing, People compete for your jobs. You worry about all this. It's all a matter of finding balance. There is no doubt, and I think most Singaporeans will accept that you do need workers to come in and do many of the jobs that either we don't have the right skill set or that you don't want to do, right? But the balance and the pace in which you make these changes become very important. When we let in too many too fast it's a problem because either your infrastructure or people have not been socialized to many different types of people, Uh, but if you have the right pacing, I think it's more acceptable. I also wonder whether uh, it is the state of mind that we have as Singaporean. There are so many Singaporeans that are global citizens today. They may not live here, they are working somewhere else and doing very good work, but they are Singaporean. Right? We go overseas and uh, we, we meet the Singaporeans and they are still very closely linked in some way, whether it's the family or they intend to come back one day. But they're global citizens. So how do we navigate this? How do we encourage this? And we see many good examples. Jessica, uh, this morning, all right? And all of you watch uh, the TikTok CEO, uh, sorry, the, the CEO being grilled, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Recently... <laughs> we all thought he did a pretty good job for a Singaporean. So, he did well, right? And it's a state of mind for many of us. And I think many, even in this room, may have lived overseas for years, but you're back, you're Singaporean. So, I wonder whether we should be seeing how we can promote that sense of place and community and ownership back home even as we expand our space bev-
3: beyond Singapore. Maybe that is something to think about. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe. So, yeah, maybe allow me to play a little bit as a contrarian. Um, because if you think about... So this is why I say that maybe the future is not so much growth, but rather it's retreat or adaptation. And I feel that Singapore has to be at the top of the, uh, the the front of the pack, inserts this pressure for Singapore to be always ahead of others. But imagine, you know, if you look at, so this morning, uh, one speaker, I think it was Professor In mentioned about San Francisco. Many cities live and die. I mean, how many cities have lived, you know, millennium? Not that many. So if we think about Singapore in another 100 and 150 years, we might be looking at a legacy city. Mm. And that legacy city, there are many in the United States, and we call it the Ross Belt. In Germany, we have many. And the, di- the dynamics of those New York, London, you know, Comes from what? Comes from different kinds of population, comes from different kinds of economic activities. Comes New York completely reinvented itself from a manufacturing center in the early 20th century to later on a service uh, uh, powerhouse. Without the immigrants, I understand, so I, I can't say anything about the city-state part, Peter and uh, Kong-Hin. Uh, but I do feel, as a city, the, di- the, the, the dynamics comes from different kinds of population and different kinds of economic activities and reinventing itself. So I'm just posing a hypothetical question.
1: Could
0: yes, uh, Peter,
1: please. I, I, I feel I must uh, respond to that because... Uh, I, I think we are talking about uh, Singapore occupying that very unique position of being a city-state. Uh, and there's no question that we could become a legacy city, but if we become a legacy city, that's the end, you know, for, for, for Singapore. The population has nowhere else to go. They're going to stay in a, a crumbling uh, a city that's uh, going to be relegated to nowhere. They've got nowhere else to, to go. So, that's the difference between, say, Singapore and cities in the Rust Belt or cities which are uh, facing uh, real challenges today, like uh, San Francisco. We got nowhere else to go. If the population doesn't like what they see, they got nowhere else to go. Whereas in other cities, which have a whole uh, country and a whole hinterland at their disposal, they've got somewhere else to go. So, the challenge is never to uh, get into that position where you uh, might be at risk of becoming uh, a a, a legacy city. And I think uh, I've always been very intrigued by a question of uh, complexity, uh, economic complexity of uh, uh, cities. Uh, And and that, in a way, uh, addresses your question. Uh, Many of the cities you refer to are cities which have simple economies, uh, like Detroit, for example. Mm -hmm. Detroit... Uh, built its uh, wealth on the automobile industry. And when uh, Japanese cars came in, that was the end. You know, they couldn't reinvent themselves. And so uh, it, 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 it started at that inevitable and very fast decline. Singapore uh, cannot afford to build a simple economy. We have to build a very complex economy that can respond to very fast changes in the global economy because it's got uh, sufficient economic complexity built into that system. But that economic complexity comes about from diversity. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it means the economy itself has to be diverse. The talent base itself uh, has to be uh, very diverse. And I think that's a very critical design consideration when we think about uh, how Singapore is going to have sufficient resilience built in so that it can survive and thrive in a future that's going to be full of uh, uh, disruptions. Mm-hmm. So I think this uh, difference between Singapore as a city-state versus other cities is a very critical mm-hmm. uh, 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 consideration.
0: I mean that's the point, right? The city is the country. Yeah. Yeah. There's nowhere else to go.
2: Can I just uh, add one point? Sure, please. I, I visit many cities and I talk with many, many city administrations One of the things is, uh, uh, maybe I'm a little bit of an optimist. Being small has its advantage. The speed at which we can make decisions and move because we have more or less a single tier of government is very important. We share many of the same ideas with many cities. We are not the most creative ones, right? What makes us different? We can implement. And we move and we implement whereas other people are still talking about it. So it is very important. It's an advantage which we should make use of. The integratedness of the city-state and also as a nation-state means you don't have that complexity of national government, state government, provincial city government that is so complicated and the process just takes very, very long. But having said that, I do have a caution, and I bring back Peter's point uh, in his speech, which I agree. When we were young, and we didn't have all these processes and institutions, we just went and did whatever we needed. We moved very fast. But as we become corporate, we start to really introduce a lot of uh, rules and processes, and which are needed in a more complex world, but they can become very rigid. So I think one thing we have to think about in our governance is to build in what I call more risk management because it's not the rule book that you want everybody to just follow. But it's an understanding that if you do something different, there are risks, yes, but it doesn't mean you don't do it. So if you apply the rigidities, then you won't do it. So that is one of my fears and concerns. I think we have to practice stronger understanding of risk management that will allow us even to fail, all right? Maybe fail safe. Is that the right (laughs) word, Peter? (laughs) Otherwise, we will not take the risk. I think we have to take, safe fail, we have to take risk. We must take risks, whether it's the public service, etc. we built in so many rules, you know, but we need to stick our head out and say, okay, I'll try. And if it fails, so be it, all right? So I think this part we have to manage very carefully or else it will take away one of the most important things we have, nimbleness and the ability to take risks. Sorry, just stop there.
0: Wiping, do you have anything to add to this? Right. Okay, I'll, I'll open the discussion to the floor now. Are there questions uh, from the floor? I've got some questions on my iPad, but maybe I'll go to the, to the um, audience attending first. Um, shall we start with the right, and then I'll go to the left? So, uh, yes, please, can you uh, introduce yourself and your organisation and ask a question? May I remind uh, the participants to keep their questions uh, short and concise so that we can have more questions. Please go ahead.
3: Uh,
2: Good afternoon to everyone. I'm Carla Yu. I'm from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, uh, Master's in Public Policy. I just have one question for the panel. Thank you for your very insightful discussion. So beyond working towards net zero and, as Professor Wu mentioned, potentially providing capacity building to the region, What other role do you see for Singapore in facilitating meaningful change and perhaps driving action towards addressing the climate crisis, especially given its unique geopolitical position and capacity to leverage climate adaptation technologies?
0: Thank you. you. The question was Professor Wu. Uh, You wanna start first and maybe I'll ask the rest of the panelists to come in.
3: Yeah. Um, So just really quick, I think, Uh, in climate change, what Singapore has done uh, in terms of the various um, mechanisms and systems and so on, I actually do feel education, the educational value of what Singapore has done is tremendous for the Global South countries. You know, we know the Kuznets curve, right? We know the Kuznets curve in the sense that only one country's got to be certain wealth that they had the capacity to build an environmental or you know ecological readiness. And that should change because we can't wait until then. And so what Singapore has done from a latecomer to the front of the pack uh, create you know, is a alternative pathway that could be very illustrative to countries that with limited resources limited land, limited uh, uh, population. Okay. Well, I I fully
2: agree with uh, Wei Ping. I think capacity building is still very, very important. And our story is actually more aligned with this part of the world because uh, we were just like in the 60s, you know, We, we knew how people feel in Asia because we went through it, right? So our experience is not from theorizing, from Western theories, but something that we went through, so I fully agree. I thought the other role that Singapore can play is we are always the center uh, that can bring people together to discuss, to exchange, to have the right ideas, and to resolve conflict. If we can play that role, it would be very helpful. And we also have that ecosystem that can help uh, deal with climate change, or at least part of it. For example, the development of a carbon exchange centre, right? Or uh, financing of green infrastructure. Singapore actually plays a very big role in financing green infrastructure. And of course, the ability to uh, invest in R&D and innovation to find the right types of solutions. These are things that we can do uh, beyond, as you mentioned, Capacity building. So I pass to Peter. Oh, Peter? Uh,
1: well, I, I think when we look at uh, climate change, uh, we should also have the humility uh, to acknowledge that whatever we can do uh, in Singapore and through Singapore will uh, barely nudge the uh, needle uh, simply because we are such a small uh, player and such a uh, whatever we do has a small effect on uh, uh, what happens around the world. But there are are some very serious problems which uh, all cities around the world experience uh, uh, as a result of climate change. Uh, One, as you know, is the problem of urban heat island uh, effect. uh, And and Singapore has uh, a, a serious problem of urban heat island in the city centre and in the industrial Uh, Belt in uh, Jurong. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is uh, serious enough for us to start uh, looking for solutions to deal with the urban heat island effect. And if you can uh, work out solutions that uh, can have some impact in Singapore, these solutions are replicable Mm -hmm. in other parts of the world, and you can be sure. Cities around the world are facing the same uh, problems. So these are the areas where we can, uh, uh, I think, make an impact. But at the same time, we should not uh, believe that uh, uh, the things we do are going to change the world when it comes to uh, climate change. It's the real big players uh, who have large economies who are the big uh, polluters who are the ones who can make a, a difference. And of course, the solutions... You have to play a long game in terms of uh, uh, climate change, and there's not a single solution that will address the issue of uh, climate change. It's your energy policies, your carbon policies. There are so many things which you have to do. And for this, you need global leadership. And the question is, does the global leadership exist uh, today? Uh, What we do can contribute, but it's not going to. Uh, change the world, so to so to speak. So I think we have to put things in perspective. Thank you, Rita. Um
0: I, I think I'll take the question on the left now. Oh, yes, uh, Paul. Please introduce yourself and then uh, ask a question. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Paul Tambaya. I'm from the medical school. Uh, but my question is entirely my own. It's a little bit provocative. And it's uh, uh, given this issue of land scarcity, is it possible to justify the continued existence of government-owned uh, single-family homes with areas of 525,171 square feet? Thank you.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: Anybody wants to take that? <laughs> Maybe later on. I,
1: I, I, well, huh? I, know, I, know, I know this is a highly political question, and I don't think I would address that question directly. But to say that uh, if you have uh, uh, design a city that is monotone, uh, that means you don't have uh, diversity of uh, 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 different land uses, uh, both for commercial, uh, private, then this is not going to be a very uh, interesting uh, place uh, to live in. The issue of who gets to uh, buy uh, which uh, type of property or rent uh, the property, I think, is uh, has has to be a question of uh, what uh, the what the policies of the day are, and policies of the day, I think, are reflection of uh, what uh, both the government uh, thinks makes uh, sense, and also what the uh, population uh, feels is uh, appropriate. Uh, by by the way, I should say that one of the uh, lucky things for Singapore is that the vast majority of the land uh, is leasehold and not freehold. And because it's leasehold, it allows the government to think of recycling the land and using it for new purposes. If everything is leasehold, it becomes intolerably expensive to repurpose land for for new things. So that's just a kind of indirect response to what I think was a very politically loaded question. (laughs) And I'm only a retired civil servant.
0: (laughs) Right, um, I'm gonna ask uh, a lady waiting there.
4: Hi, my name is Selena and I'm currently a student at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Um, The problem of an aging population has been mentioned several times throughout today's conference, which um, Professor Cheong Kun-Hin has termed as a driver of change. Professor Wu Weiping also interestingly brought up the issue of migration. My question uh, on this note has to deal with the role of migration in addressing an aging population as well as the need to rejuvenate Singapore in the the long run. Specifically, migration referring to two things. The first thing being the transient migrant labor that Singapore currently has today and second, uh, which Singapore does not. Uh, Involve itself so much in on refugee resettlement. How could these populations play in uh, the long-term aging trend we see in Singapore today? And this question is for all panelists, including uh, the moderator, Mr. Tan Taiyong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I got singled out. (laughs) All right. Well, I I think I should leave it to the experts first. And, Weeping, since you mentioned this whole idea of migration and mobility, Mm You should start first, yeah.
3: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I shall clarify, I I did not mean refugee, I I meant the city as a refuge for migrants, so that that there's a difference there, right? But nonetheless, I think your question uh, is very pertinent. That is, um, we actually had some discussion already about how critical migrants are to the economy of the city-state, as well as the long-term vitality of the local economy, which is actually connected very much with the rest of the region and the rest of the world. I think what Peter early on said about the difference between a city-state and the city in the state uh, really uh, poses significant, I wouldn't call it barriers, but constraints on how much migration could be absorbed in a city of this. Although, I do not see why the city could not be 12 million, right? Uh, I mean, it's now <laughs> 7 million or something. I know, I must be saying something absolutely ludicrous. No. Uh, but in terms of density, in terms of the amount of territory, I think it's possible. So let me just put it on the table. OK. Uh, I'd just like to say that um,
2: the issue of migration is not an issue that is specific to Singapore. I was in Europe uh, early part of this year, and many of the European countries, not just cities, reach out to many of the countries that have huge populations, whereas in India, for example, and invite them to send more people to their countries. because. Like us, they're aging. Secondly, they have nobody to fill the jobs, many of the jobs, mm. I, I think. Uh, so, so I'm saying it's not new to Singapore. It's just that we're smaller. And if uh, I, I omitted from my slides. I had a lot of statistics. If you just look at the statistics on the total fertility rate, uh, if we carry on this way, we will be extinct. Who stop? And it's not just about having people to do the work that you don't want to do. But it is just replacement and making sure the country has people in it. But of course, the process of managing, how do you manage? I talked about the pace of the migration, who you actually let in that will benefit the country and benefit everybody. uh, And how do you integrate people in over time is important. And if you look at the statistics, there is actually a huge uh, transnational marriages in Singapore. It's not even through migration, it's just transnational marriages. So, the complexion, that's why I say that is one of the key drivers of society. There will be changes because the complexion of society will change. It's just a natural process. So, I, I think it's just how you manage it, uh, the pace at which you manage it, and the integration becomes very important. Don't forget, many of us, uh, our parents were migrants. My father was a migrant. I'm first-generation Singaporean. So let's not forget that. Peter? Uh,
1: well, I've, I've already, uh, in a way, made s- some comments about uh, uh, migration. And I I think I agree with uh, Kun Hien's point about the complexion changing. You can already see it's not just an issue of... Uh, transnational marriages, there are uh, interracial uh, marriages that are taking place in, in very large uh, proportion of the total number of uh, marriages. So society itself is uh, going to change uh, and relatively uh, quickly in a relatively short space of time. But there's one aspect of the demographic changes that are taking place in Singapore. The moment you uh, uh, accept the uh, that the debate uh, uh, says that we do need to uh, welcome uh, foreign workers, foreign talent into Singapore. That will add another layer of uh, uh, complexity to the situation. And I think the issue of migration, uh, it it gets very politicized in in other uh, countries. I think it's quite politicized in Singapore. Uh, But at the same time, it's also a legitimate debate over how fast the system can absorb uh, migrants because if you come in uh, in in very large numbers, then there's a question of whether you have the infrastructure, the resources to absorb them. So these are issues which we have to think about. We also have to think about uh, issues like uh, whether there's uh, cultural compatibility we can't pretend that, there are, that there are, these issues don't exist. They are, they are part of the, the debate. But at, uh, I would say uh, 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 the, 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 the most meta-level uh, issue is what will it take for Singapore to survive in the long term? No. And if you are uh, constrained today, as we already are, by very low TFR and a very rapidly aging society, which also comes, by the way, from a uh, 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 very high life expectancy, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, we do have to accept that the way forward, if you cannot boost uh, TFR, is to uh, uh, accept the possibility of uh, allowing uh, migrants to come into Singapore in perhaps larger numbers than we've uh, been prepared to in the past. And this is a very critical, and I would say existential debate that
0: must take place. Mm-hmm. Well, since I was asked as well, I'll venture a very quick response. You know, historically, Singapore has been known as the child of the diaspora. It was, it was made by people coming in from different parts of the world, settled here, make the home here, made Singapore. But now we are a country with a citizenship, a cis- citizenry, a settled population. But as mentioned by my fellow panelists, with the lowering of the birth rates and all that, can Singapore sustain itself? using its local population, and if not, how is it going to continue growing in the future? And that is where you need foreign talent, you need foreign uh, workers to come and help build Singapore. So open to migration, I think it will be necessary, but as has been mentioned by my fellow panellists, it's how you calibrate it, how you integrate them, how you make sure that... uh, by the influx of these people, there are no further disruptions or unnecessary disruptions in our country. So that's my take on the, the issue of migration. I'm mindful of the time with the clocks winding down. I see there's a question there and there's a question there. Maybe we'll take the last two questions together. Um, make them short, please. Uh, Omar and then this lady who's... Uh, yeah, okay, go ahead. I'm Homer, chairman of Tanning Kiam Foundation. I have two questions. One question, please. Oh, one. Yeah, <laughs> short one. Okay, what are your thoughts about Singapore expanding our land area by acquiring, purchasing a, a piece of land such as an island or perhaps merging with an island somewhere like in the Caribbean? I noticed some of the Caribbean islands are successful financial centres. They are rich, they cater to the North American market. Perhaps we can do the same. Okay, acquiring additional territory for Singapore. Uh, Miss, yes, please.
4: I'm Selena from Bloomberg News. Uh, I'm curious, like, how can Singapore reinvent its public housing model to deal with a lot of new, fresh trends and problems like affordability, uh, new kinds of diverse family models like same-sex couples or singles? Like, how can we be bold in reinventing that? Because that's what we've done over the past few decades. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So two questions. One, can we acquire more territories uh, to expand Singapore? And two, uh, how should our housing policy reflect Changing social norms.
3: Oh.
0: Anybody? Uh, Kunin, I know you keep at looking
2: at, <laughs> at me. <laughs>
0: Kunya, why don't you go first? Okay, now.
2: maybe Homer's question. Uh, yeah. Well, I do represent government, right? Uh, I think if there's some place for us to buy, we'd be happy to buy it, but it's whether people want to sell it to you. I think that, that's my simple question. Selling things is a matter of sovereignty. And I do know a lot of very rich people in America buy islands for their resort home, but I don't think that suits our purpose. Uh, it's probably too far. So there are these issues of sovereignty that is uh, uh, not so easy to resolve, right? Even when we invest in the country nearby, you know, our neighbours, you do have to deal with the, the concerns of sovereignty and uh, 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 their regulations, etc. So whether they even sell it to you maybe. The most important question is not whether, uh, what do I think of buying? If there's somebody who's prepared to sell, I think we would be prepared to have a look. <laughs> all right. Uh, okay, uh, the lady from Bloomberg, how much time do you have? It's a three hour conversation. So <laughs> I will not attempt to answer it. I think it's not about reinventing itself. You never start on a clean slate. All right. Public housing has been around for 60 years, and there are a lot of entrenched issues that we have to think about. I think MND, uh, I don't know if the new HDB CEO is here. You can go and talk to him afterwards. But uh, it, I, if you read from all the things that the Ministry of National Development and HDB is doing, they are trying to address these issues. In fact, even the conversation on affordability to me is a three-hour conversation to help you to understand how do you define affordability, all right? So I don't want to take up the time because with... Uh, uh, We're we'll run out of time, but there, there are all these issues that uh, please feel free to approach HDB. they can explain it to you. Thank you.:
0: Thank you Peter, and then um, I'll at, so I uh, think Ku has... Okay, answer this question the uh, we've been given. Well. Okay, I think we've had a very uh, interesting discussion and in, uh, following three excellent <laughs> presentations. Time's run out, I'm afraid. so <laughs> please join me in thanking our expert panelists for their views. Thank you.